You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Anusha, thank you so much for joining me on the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on as a guest. Thank you so much, Kino. I am delighted to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. So on the Yoga Inspiration Podcast, we like to talk about what inspires people to practice yoga and kind of begin to get at the heart of the, you know, our personal and individual connection to the lineage of yoga. And I'm particularly interested in that from your perspective, because I think that uh, compared to most people that I've spoken with, you may have a very, a very, a very deep relationship with the practice of yoga. So would you kind of share what your, you know, what your first interaction with yoga was and and what keeps you inspired to practice today? Yeah. And for me, it's very deeply personal, Kino. I was born and raised into the philosophy of Sanatana Dharma, yoga, more, more commonly known as Hinduism. Yoga is one of six Ashtika schools of Hindu philosophy. So to me, yoga isn't something that, that I'm doing externally. Yoga has been a practice that I aim to embody in my daily life, but has really been a part of my life since birth, quite frankly. And I think that's often what is disconnected in the West. I mean, first of all, we associate yoga with asana, which is problematic in of itself. Yoga is so much more than asana. But I also think what people are unaware of is that yoga is actually a part of a faith and a faith that has been around for thousands of years, and a philosophy that we who are part of this faith, and for those of us that were born and raised into this philosophy, it really does make up the fabric of our lives. So when I think about yoga, it's something I live and breathe. It's something that I'm doing when I wake up in the morning until I go to sleep at night. And it's connecting with God, which is what the Bhagavad Gita talks about in great detail in the conversation that Arjuna had with Lord Krishna, you know, what is yoga? And the Bhagavad Gita tells us yoga is got nothing to do with what we see portrayed in mainstream yoga and wellness in the West. Yoga is a way of living, it's a way of being, and it's consistently connecting with divine consciousness through our thoughts, through our words, and specifically through karma yoga, our actions. And so what does that look like for you first thing in the morning? And as you said, yoga for me, it's the first thing in the morning. And so what is that? What's the texture of that? You know, what's the, what's the feeling, what's the embodiment and what's the, you know, what's the action that ends up informing your day-to-day life? So I, we don't have a television in our room and where the, the room would be for the television. I have a picture of Lord Shiva. It's actually Mahashivaratri tomorrow and the goddess Parvati. So upon rising, the first thing that I see is Lord Shiva and the goddess Parvati. And when I go to bed at night, it's the last thing that I see. So, and I've done that purposefully, Kino. When you, you know, if you come to my house, there are pictures of our deities all over the house. If I showed you, you can see it in my office. So for me, it's that constant reminder of that is yoga. I'm connecting back to divine consciousness, but I'm also doing that as part of my sadhana. So the first thing that I do when I wake is I invite God into my life, into my heart, into my mind, and I devote my actions for the for the day to God, and really focus to the best of my abilities. Obviously, I'm I'm imperfect. I'm human. I'm having an, an imperfect human experience in this physical body in this life. 
But to the best of my ability, I am yoking my actions, my thoughts, and my reality in this physical body back to divine consciousness. Then my morning sadhana practice, you know, before I had my three-year-old son, it was this elongated, very peaceful practice. Now I wake up early so that I can actually do my morning meditation, my morning mantra practice. Uh, before he rises, we pray twice a day, and I, I do and my son does, I do it with him. So we do our morning prayers together. And that is me beginning the day with yoga. You know, I haven't done anything physical. And that's my point. You know, asana is the physicality of the practice. I do asana. I love asana. But yoga is this lived experience, especially for those of us that, you know, this is the way that I was raised as well. And so for me, the richness of bringing my indigenous faith, which I must add, my ancestors had to resist, 443 years of brutal colonization under three imperialist regimes in Sri Lanka so we could hold on to our indigenous faith of Hinduism, of Sanatana Dharma, to our Tamil language, our culture and our customs. And that was no easy feat of accomplishment. As you can imagine, Sri Lanka is a small, tiny island at the southernmost tip of India. And to have the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British colonize this tiny island their strength, their courage, and their resistance, I feel it so strongly in my life, in my DNA. And so, you know, pursuing my dharma in this life, which is the work that I do in my business and, and with my trainings, etc., really is the legacy of this resistance of my ancestors, who I'm beyond grateful to that, I mean, not only that I get to teach this, but that I got to live it in this life and to be born into a family who was steeped in, in these traditions and these lineages. So what was your first, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that. There's just so much in there to kind of unpack that I want to want to, want to talk with you about. But the, the, the first thing that I would love to hear more about are, are, is the that first contact, you know, you said I was raised in this lineage. I was raised, you know, with, I would imagine that, you know, that, that your mom was doing some of the same rituals in the morning that you're doing so that it's a very personal connection. Do you have some, you know, some memory, some contact at a very young age of that devotional connection to God from yourself? You know, I mean, from my perspective, I wasn't raised with any religion. So my parents took a very conscious decision to not raise me with any religion because I sit at the intersection of two faiths. I, you know, I'm Japanese Buddhist and my father is Scottish and Protestant. So they took this conscious decision of no faith whatsoever. So I'm very intrigued by your experience of being immersed so much in this very strong Hindu culture. And I have so much respect for the way that the, the Hindu culture, I don't know Sri Lanka, but, you know, in India where, you know, that, that, that morning puja practice and the connection to the divine is just so infused into daily life. So do you, like, when was it that you knew, yes, I believe in God. Yes. My connection to God, my Ishta Devata is Shiva. And is that from, you know, is that from your family lineage or did that somehow spontaneously occur to you at some moment? Well, I would say that we were raised in Shaivism. So Lord Shiva is, is the deity is endless Parvati. Uh, we all universally as Hindus revere Lord Nesha, but we in, as South Indians, and, and I'm Tamil, that falls into that category. We have different deities. So the Muruhan, who is Lord Ganesha's brother, not very well known. We also revere in South India and Sri Lanka. 
but to me, my connection to God, I've never questioned. It's just been a part of my being. And I think to me, it's never been separate. It's always been internal. And that is a testament to my mother specifically and my grandmother and all of my maternal side who are, you know, deeply spiritual people. And that's not to say that my father said that I just spent more time with my maternal, uh, you know, grandparents and, and aunts. And this is what they did. And it's, and you, that in itself has been a blessing because I got to learn from them. They were my first teachers. And if I think about my, you know, Diana practice, it was always in front of altar praying. And it was you know, going to the temple and singing bhajans and meditating from a very small age, as I write it and share about in my book, not because, because that was a part of what our worship looked like. And, you know, it's something that you don't think about as a, a child. It's because you're doing it. it it's your norm. It was my norm. As I have older, I appreciate it more. It's something that I've always just taken for granted. But I think, you know, certainly becoming an educator and a teacher, I realize how blessed this experience has been for me. And there are many South Asians that haven't had that experience and that have had to, because of colonization, reclaim their faith and uh, their ancestry in terms of these practices. That hasn't been my experience, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And to me, you know, yoga is that that union of you know, the Jivatma to the Paramatma. So it's something that I'm not doing just for meditation or I'm not doing when I'm on my yoga mat. I am aiming to do that in every interaction in my day. And to me, it's about that acceptance of imperfection because to me from a very small age, Kino, God was my best friend. Mm -hmm. And so I tell God everything, like really, you know, I'm having chats with God, like we're just, we're having a chat like on, you know, about anything and everything. And if I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm telling God that, or if I'm happy, I'm, I'm sharing that with God. And we're having, you know, these conversations, which I've had since childhood. And you can see here, I'm wearing what we call the Panjai, which are the weapons of the gods. This was put on me as a newborn baby. This was given to me by my Periyama, my mother's eldest sister. This is part of our tradition. So you know, for me, my connection, I always felt protected as a child too. I was like, I've got all these cool weapons. <laughs> so I always felt the connection and protection of the divine in my life. And that's what I want to instill in my son, Surya, who is named after Lord Surya, the Hindu God of the sun, because it's been such a blessing. And, and, and this connection to God has honestly carried me through my life. Quite frankly, I don't know what I would have done specifically over the past year if God wasn't my best, to be really honest with you, and able to share the highs, the lows, the ups and downs. And so to me, that is yoga. You know, that is the ultimate yoga of communing with, with the divine and communing in a way, not just at my altar, but communing throughout my day. And, you know, you know, everybody's relationship with God is different. And, you know, and it could be the God of your own understanding, like I talk about in my book, you know, God may represent the universe or nature or source or spirit. But I think what is often lost under the Judeo-Christian lens is that God, for most people that I teach, think of it as a masculine energy. Mm -hmm. And to us, God is intimately the feminine in Sanatana Dharma. And so when I say God, I don't talk about masculinity. I talk about deeps of femininity as well. And if we look at Shiva and Shakti, it's the union of the two. In Adi Nirishvara, 
It's that union of the male and the female. And that is God to me. It's not just this masculine energy. Mm. Uh, And I think, you know, also from a young age, learning about our Hindu goddesses who were more powerful, quite frankly, than the male deities. And that was quite empowering for a young, small, brown girl who experienced racism and white supremacy from a very young age uh, to know that I come from this fierce tradition. And, you know, it's, it's very powerful to be othered, but to have the practice of yoga to fall back on, to know that at home, within, And so I think that's why I've traveled so much. I've been in four countries. I can't tell you how many homes. I think for the book, I calculated how many homes I've lived in (laughs) throughout my life. And to me, home is where you are. And I think it's also taught me that detachment from material possessions and homes and all of those things that people seem so attached to just because of, of the fact that I have moved a lot. That's definitely contributed to the richness of my life. But for me, God is within me. So that relationship can't be taken from you, you know, and the Yoga Sutras talks about this too. So it's very intimate uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a relationship that to me, I'm really aiming to live yoga in every interaction that I have, obviously sometimes terribly and sometimes, you know, better than others. And I think that's also an important point to make is that we are imperfect. I am far from perfect. I tell my son this all of the time. Mummy is not perfect because I don't want him to think we are striving for this perfect model or image of a mother or, or a child. And when he tells us he's sad, we normalize that. Of course you're sad. It's okay to be sad. We don't have to be happy all the time and we're not happy all of the time. So really trying as a mother to bring as much of, of my upbringing that has been rooted in my indigenous faith to Surya's life and to impart some of that uh, wisdom to him, to help him on his journey in this life. What a, what a beautiful gift to pass on. That's that's so so awesome. And you're not only passing it on to him, but I very much see your work at the intersection of your of of, of your indigenous faith and your work in the contemporary wellness spaces as you know really upholding that strong faith that you're that you're speaking of now as we as we speak and that's infused in your very being. So when did you make the decision and what was it like for you to work in wellness spaces where South Asian voices are um, a minority and how does it feel to be kind of at the leading edge of the practice of, you know, decolonizing yoga? I mean, quite honestly, the whole reason that I came up with my decolonizing trainings, which was it'll be six years ago in May, was that in my teacher training, we had a white yoga teacher that referred to Lord Shiva as a dancing Vegas showgirl. Now, the teacher, you know, didn't mean to be offensive, but intention doesn't equal impact. And I remember just being utterly shocked. But what was interesting is the, the shock from others that were a part of that training as well. And I think that irrespective of this not being this person's faith, you wouldn't say that about anything that was sacred to somebody else. So it was at that point that I realized, wow, people this person didn't know and the people this person is teaching don't know. So they're going to go away thinking Natarajasana has got to do with the Vegas dancing shogal when it's actually a form of Lord Shiva. So I at that point realized, Kino, wow, you know, the level of misinformation that is being spread in the very white, uh, you know, whitewash world of yoga is causing a lot of harm 
because people are learning from people that don't know what they're talking about when it comes to either be it yoga philosophy, be it Hinduism. And so that's what really gave me the impetus to create my philosophy of asana decolonizing yoga trainings uh, and to teach about Hinduism, which is one of the six schools of you know, yoga is one of the six schools of Hindu philosophy. And then, you know, to see where my decolonizing trainings have come now is, is crazy. Because when I first started teaching it, nobody was interested. And I thought nobody was turning up. And I think I had two people the first time. So think about the fast forward six years and the past year in particular, that decolonization is becoming a topic that we've needed to talk about, we must talk about, and at least it is becoming more widely accepted to talk about in the mainstream. You know, two years ago when leading specifically the cultural appropriation and decolonizing your pieces, there was so much resistance and anger specifically coming from white women. And that's not to say that that's not the case now, but I think we're at least in a time where this conversation is being had more. There are more South Asians taking up space in this area, which is wonderful to see. When I started doing it, I didn't know anybody that was doing it. And that's not to say that people weren't doing it. It's just we weren't connected. And now because of social media, we're able to learn about each other's work and to platform and answers of Asians who are doing phenomenal work in this field. But to me, decolonizing yoga and decolonizing our mindset is pivotal in 2021. And to break down that word a little bit, because I feel like there might be some people who hear that as a buzzword, you know, it get it kind of gets, you know, just out there in the social media feed. One person says, you know, decolonize your bookshelf. Another one says you have to decolonize your yoga practice. You have to decolonize your kitchen pantry. And then it just turns into this buzzword. So can you break that down for people that might not understand what does it mean? Like, why is it important and how does it apply to the yoga practice? And I'm just going to put this really simply because I like to simplify things. White supremacy and racism permeates every aspect of our existence. And I think there's that disconnect of people not understanding that. So people, when I say white supremacy, Kino, think, oh, that's the Confederate flag waving, swastika badge wearing, which by the way, we do have a lot of in this country. We saw that unfold specifically on January 6th with the insurrection. And also, and I wrote an article about this, there were yoga teachers involved in that insurrection. So we are in a complete crisis in yoga in this country. And from what I hear from others around the world, it's also happening in other, in other parts of the world. But what people are unaware of is, yes, that is one aspect of white supremacy. However, white supremacy, because of colonization, because of the enslavement of people, has whitewashed history. So the history that we are taught is actually factually incorrect. And we are taught the white savior complex. We are not taught the truth, the brutality of what colonization really is, of what the enslavement of a people really is, of what chattel slavery really uh, constituted. And that causes a lot of harm. We then see white supremacy very prevalent in publishing, in entertainment, in media, in film, in cooking. So what people don't realize is this in education system, this is a part of our existence. And the people that unfortunately continue to be marginalized and oppressed are BIPOC and BIWOC voices specifically, but it doesn't serve the white majority either to be learning a history that is incorrect because it just doesn't help us in terms of accountability and repair. So when 
we say decolonize, we're decolonizing all of the things that I have just listed. We have to unlearn a lot of what we have been taught, especially in the education system, and quite frankly, in, in the arts, fashion, beauty, all of these things have been colonized. There have been Eurocentric beauty standards that have been pushed upon us. When I was young, you never put anybody that looked like me anywhere, ever. I mean, it's still somewhat of a rarity in film and, you know, on television, but it have representation of other BIPOC now. And, and, you know, hopefully South Asians, I feel we're, we're getting, we're gaining more momentum. We're still the most underrepresented group in yoga though. But when we say decolonize and decolonize your bookshelf, like you said, it's how many authors of color do you have on your bookshelf? How many, I, I love the decolonize your kitchen. I haven't heard that one, but I can only think that means like, where are we getting our spices from? that are so popular in Ayurveda. Where are, you, where are you buying your turmeric from? Where are you getting your ashwagandha from? Are you supporting South Asian brands, BIPOC brands with a lot of what we consume? Or are we feeding into the continual colonization of these herbs, of these spices by, by, that are being pushed by these elitist wellness people that are, are extortionate and we know are only supposed to be for the few. And that's the issue in wellness in general. It's that elitism. You know, yoga is for everybody and we have to move away from that elitism supremacy and and even religious supremacy, you know, I teach from a feminist caste reformist perspective, the way that I was raised. And so it's important that we're breaking down supremacy in everything that we're doing, uh, be it, you know, in, in, in white culture, be it in Hinduism, that's what we need to be doing in our practice in general. So decolonization is really a way of living now in terms of how we're consuming the information that we're getting and who we're learning from. And, you know, a really great question for the audience is how many BIWOC voices are you listening to in BIPOC voices? And if we think about South Asians, how many South Asian teachers are you specifically seeking out to learn from uh, when it comes to things like yoga philosophy? And I talk about yoga philosophy specifically because what I have seen is when I have been taught yoga philosophy from somebody from a Judeo-Christian lens, their version of our philosophy is very watered down and very filtered to their lens. So you're really not getting the true essence of what our scriptures say. And I think that's a really important point to denote because, you know, everybody has a lens at which they look at things. But if you're teaching, the Bhagavad Gita is a great example. It's been the most misappropriated, co-opted text. If you're teaching the Bhagavad Gita and you're not talking about reincarnation, I wonder what you're reading. Because reincarnation and karma are two of the central components of all of the Dharmic faiths, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. But they are the, the key central components in the Bhagavad Gita. Yet when I see and hear the narrative around the Bhagavad Gita, it's interesting what is left out, Kino, because of that discomfort around those beliefs. And what I always say is you don't have to believe in, in karma and reincarnation, but you have to have an understanding of it, especially as a yoga teacher, if you're teaching yoga philosophy. Because those are central components. We only have karma because of reincarnation. So this is what can often be lost in translation. Yeah. And then people, you know, getting this watered down view and then still have no concept of what our scriptures really say. You know, I feel so, in some ways, so, so grateful that I started yoga so many years ago because I almost feel like I have the inverse relationship to yoga that maybe the mainstream wellness industry, as you're describing it, is presented to in this day. You know, for me, I 
came into the, I came into yoga and found a very traditional lineage. And immediately, like within a year of my consistent practice, I traveled to India and I actually had almost the opposite effect. I would immediately think uh, if it's not an Indian teacher, then I'm not really interested in practicing with. I always, for me, elevated all of the Indian teachers and what I'd learned in India. And if I wanted to learn the philosophy, I would, would wait to go and study the philosophy of, you know, with some teacher that I would I'd be recommended to in Mysore, which is where I spent most of my time practicing. And every time I studied with a Western teacher, I always, in my mind, which is, I guess, also a type of prejudice that I took on, but I always equated it as kind of less than, as not authentic, as coming not from the source. And so, so I, I'm almost shocked in the state of somewhat disbelief that there are you know people that interact with the yoga practice from in, in such a way that's so divorced from the experience that I had when I first started practicing and and I think it's highly problematic that that there are yoga teacher trainings out there that aren't couched within a lineage that don't that from from teachers that don't have a teacher from people that remove the the the, the sort of the, the 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 sacred aspects of the whole presentation of the lineage of yoga to remove the sanskrit from the presentation to remove god from the discussion to remove these these just the sacred concepts to not talk about the scriptures to just think that you know, okay, well, it's just uh, stretching. And if you feel good, then it's good for you and go for it. I, I, it's just so foreign for me that I, I really commend you for doing this very, very important work. And uh, there's a part of me that's just aghast that it's even necessary. And I guess this is this paradigm of, of subliminal, uh, uh, the, the, the subliminal culture of, you know, colonization, the colonizer's mindset, the settler culture. And I, again, really, really commend you for that. So here's a question that I find that when this, when this topic gets talked about from people that um, maybe don't have a yoga lineage, but they came into yoga and they, you know, walked into it in a gym and did kind of like a mainstream teacher training. And they were just like, I love yoga. It's made me so happy. I want to be a teacher. And they're, you know, in that blissful ignorance that, you know, you feel good after your yoga practice. Great. Even if they've removed everything sacred, there's still some vital, powerful essence of the lineage and they benefited from it. Then this person, they start teaching. Is that what can someone like that do to better honor the lineage of yoga? How can how can they truly move away from cultural appropriation into a true respect for the practice? What's the what's the bridge for someone at that intersection? So I actually kind of want to talk about the lineage as well, because what I do see and I find the lineage quite problematic in of itself, because there is so I think we're in a time now of post-lineage yoga. We know the harm that. The, the guru culture and yoga has, has, it's been highly problematic, quite frankly. And I think there are many Westerners that went to India and got involved in a lineage and then felt superiority in some ways. Mm -hmm. And that goes against yogic philosophy and ethics as well. So to me, when we talk about dismantling, we have to dismantle that too. We're now in a time of post-lineage yoga. Quite frankly, just because you've been trained in a lineage, to me, what have you learned? And are you also decolonizing your mind in terms of the hierarchical casteist ways that often that was taught in? And it's really interesting because when I think of lineages, I see how much white men love that specifically. <laughs> it's true. 
you know, and I'm not going to name names, but I have, you know, as part of teacher trainings or courses, been to, and they're so proud about the lineage and they're shouting about it. And it's part of the patriarchy, you know. And so to me, and it's still that elitism and they still, quite frankly, even those that have gone to Mysore, that have studied in India, that have been part of a lineage, the true philosophy of yoga has been completely lost on them. And these are people that I have been to their trainings. And so to me, that is irrelevant in some way. I find the harm that is, is, is being caused by those exact people alongside the people that you uh, say, you know, to the 200 hour and now think that they're going to run their own training, et cetera, et cetera. The me, to me, the two are intertwined, which is still rooted in white supremacy. Would you, and would you talk more about how those two are intertwined? I find that very interesting. Because it, it's the mentality of colonization in a different way. So the white person goes to India and studies under a lineage and now has an air of superiority, especially with men, and they come back and they lord it over everybody else and point fingers versus when, you know, you hear them, the concepts of, of the actual essence of Sanatana Dharma are, are lost on them. And they're more interested in telling you about their experience with said guru. I don't care, frankly. So I think, and then you have the different type of colonization, and then they have a hierarchy in the West that they create through upholding that patriarchy and lineage. So that's problematic, incredibly harmful. Then you have the person that's clueless, that's gone on a 200-hour training that perhaps isn't even aware of, that, of anything, and they're creating harm in a different way. Both models are harmful. They're just harmful in different ways. And just and sometimes, Kino, a little knowledge is worse than no knowledge because those that have a little knowledge, but they have all the knowledge. And I can tell you as someone that has been born and raised in Sanatana Dharma, I view myself as a humble student of yoga and Hinduism in general. I'm always learning. The moment that we think we know everything, which is very much a, a, a Eurocentric mindset, is the moment that we actually have failed to comprehend what yoga really is. And, you know, we have to have humility in our practice and we have to have humility as teachers. And unfortunately, we see so often in the West, and I'm not to say that's not happening in the East, but in the West, where that ego consciousness, you know, the asmita, the ahankara has taken hold and either we're disconnected from actually practicing what we're, we're preaching or we really don't have a deep understanding of what it is that we're teaching. And so you, to me, I always bring myself back to the question, what am I doing? Not what am I saying? Not what am I teaching? What am I doing? Because to me, that is yoga. Yoga is in my thoughts. It's in my words. It's in my deeds. It's in my actions. It's not just I'm saying the right thing and then what am I doing on the side? And I think we need to see more of that. I think over the past year in particular with the pandemic, we have seen so many people spread disinformation about COVID-19, the anti-science rhetoric, but also a deep misunderstanding of what yoga is. I am told all the time by white folks, oh, it's just love. We should all just be love. And, you know, we shouldn't feel anger or frustration. That's complete rubbish. Of course, we should feel those things. Those are human characteristics. And quite frankly, if you're not angry over the past year, I'm questioning where you are, where are you living? What are you doing? You know, we have seen the levels of oppression and injustice play out in the world. And for me, the way that I teach is at the intersection of, like I said, that feminist caste reformist perspective, but also the intersection of yoga being a path of social justice as expounded in the Bhagavad Gita. 
And so, and quite frankly, what Sri Ramakrishna, you know, yoga and Vedanta are the sister schools of Hindu philosophy. And what Sri Ramakrishna talked about is very much the path of yoga being one of social justice, of karma yoga, selfless service to God, but through right action. And so that's my question to people. I think we seem to have not, I wouldn't even say forgotten, not understood what yoga is. And we think it's, I'm going to send love and I'm going to send light and I'm going to engage in spiritual bypassing because many of the people that we're talking about in yoga have the privilege to do so. And to me, we actually should be utilizing our practice to dismantle those systems of oppression, even if we are not the oppressed, if that makes any sense. Because Sri Ramakrishna in his teachings talked about this all of the time. You know, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And so therefore, what are we doing with our practice of yoga to uplift and alleviate the suffering of others? Because even though the path of yoga itself is one of individual liberation, right, the eight limb path, individual liberation is intimately connected to collective liberation. And I think we're, li we're living in the Kali Yuga. That is, that is clearly apparent in the time that we are in. So what are each and every one of us doing beyond empty words and hashtags and slogans to impact real change in our communities and society around us? And that's the question that needs to be asked in yoga studios and mainstream yoga environments. Because that's the urgent issue of the moment that we are in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, Anusha, you have so, such a rich and deep perspective. And I just want to dive into everything that you're, that you're saying, you know, and there's just so much. So I'm going to, there was something I put a pin in in my mind when you were talking about post lineage yoga. So I'd love to kind of go back to this discussion of post lineage yoga. So here's something that I, that I sit with personally. I, I, I definitely agree with you that we're in this post lineage space and that it's time to definitely question and update the guru model. At the same time, what I noticed is that there are um, some white male voices who are using the mantle of decolonization to essentially erase all of the contribution of, you know, Indian teachers in this effort to up, like po present post-lineage yoga. And I find that extremely problematic because now we're, you know, following a, another kind of, you know, white male voice than washing away all of the history of the past. While at the same time, then, you know, I, I recognize that, yes, we do need this post-lineage practice and we need to honor the past at the same time. It seems that there's no real easy answer. And another confusing kind of issue that, that I see is that, you know, um, sometimes there are, uh, th there's a claim particularly of uh, like the claim of who owns yoga and where does yoga belong? And that essentially people that are white maybe shouldn't even be practicing or teaching yoga because it's not within their faith and that it should only be, it should almost be like designated as the cultural heritage of India and that's it and nothing else. So it's a very, this is complex space of, well, if we don't honor the lineage and we don't find some way to couch ourselves within the history and tradition, then what are we like, who are we following? And what is, so what does that post lineage space look like in a way that both honors the past but doesn't just reformat to a new colonizer's mind where we just follow you know some some white male voice that's telling us forget all the gurus and do what i say and creating kind of like another weird mini like hierarchical guru model so what 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 it's it's, it's mind-boggling you know so what uh what do you see like what, I is, what is run from anybody trying to whether they're white or brown or black whoever they are <laughs> 
run away fast from anybody trying to create any hierarchical model, be it men who tend to, to, to enjoy that patriarchy or women. Run as fast as you can because that doesn't honor the essence of the faith. And the essence of the faith isn't a lineage, Kino, quite frankly. You know, if we think about Sanatana Dharma itself, Sanatana Dharma means eternal way. It predates Hinduism. Hinduism and Hindu itself was the name the colonizer gave us. We first of all never even called ourselves as having a religion. It was a faith. It was a way of living. It was a philosophy. As a result of colonization, it became a religion. The third world largest religion. We have 1.2 practicing billion Hindus around the world. But to me, Are you honoring the faith and the philosophy? And most people are not because they don't even equate yoga as being a part of one of the world's five largest faiths. So that to me is the biggest problem. Now, I don't believe that only South Asians should teach yoga. I really don't. I I think there are wonderful teachers out there who are not, uh, you know, of the Dharmic traditions. And I've learned from them. And I think we should be encouraging Uh, a multitude of voices into this space. So personally, I don't believe that. I believe that, yes, this is a part of my indigenous faith, but I'm all about let honor it whilst we can secularize it, if that makes any sense. I, I don't feel that any of us should feel ownership, quite frankly, over any of our faiths. With that being said, I think that we, as, as Hindus, have done ourselves a great disservice because we have been too passive. And, and I see this play out in, in the decades of my own life where Because of our philosophy, we would turn the other cheek. We would let things slide. We wouldn't, I mean, just to give you an example, when the teacher said that about Lord Shiva, it wasn't myself that raised it as a concern, Kina. You know, that's that's the point. Like, I, when we're living our philosophy, we're living it. And I think it's it's just in us in, in many ways, that type of, you know, we're, we're practicing the yamas, the niyamas, but in our daily interactions. And in many ways, that's done us a disservice. And as a result, the of Hindu-phobia and Islamophobia, as another example, which are constructs of white supremacy, has risen. So people aren't respecting the faith in which yoga comes from. And I often hear, and even South Asians that perhaps weren't raised in the faith say, well, yoga isn't a religion. I don't personally like the word religion because I feel, again, it's the way to control people and it's steeped in patriarchy. All of the religions are. So I prefer faith because to me, This is my faith. This is a way of living. And it transcends religion and the boundaries created by all religions, quite frankly. So in that sense, there isn't an ownership. In fact, there is no conversion to Hinduism. I'm sure, as you know, Kino, you, you, there's no, we don't have any conversion because ultimately we believe that, you know, ekam sat vipraha bahudha vedanti in Sanskrit, one path, many, tru- many different paths lead to God, basically. There's one truth. So my way isn't the only way. My way isn't the right way. It is one way. So the way that I was raised, we believe that God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, and people can interpret that in different ways. I can find God anywhere. I love personally worshiping in different uh, religious spaces because I like to see how other people worship. I find it fascinating. And so for me, God can be, of course, I can pray in the mosque. I can pray in the synagogue. I can pray in the church. I actually quite like the Catholic church, which kind of surprises people because I like the rituals, you know, that, and I'm not Catholic. So I'm not coming with that, with that baggage in some ways that I see many people have. So for me, I can pray anywhere because I don't feel that my way is the only way. And that is the essence of Sanatana Dharma. So when we try to own something, that in itself becomes a problem.
And for us, those of us that are living Sanatana Dharma, we don't have a founder. There isn't one church. We are taught to question everything, Kina. So even as me, I never, you know, say to another person that's Hindu, you're wrong and I'm right. That, that goes against the philosophy. Of course, they're entitled to their opinion. There are many South Asians that I don't agree with, but they're not wrong. I'm not rooted in being right. I'm just teaching from my lens and my perspective. And my greatest concern is that continual colonization and desecration of this ancient faith and philosophy, not quibbling over who owns what, if that makes sense. And again, I have to say that is a Western construct. You know, the colonial mindset is to divide and conquer, and they will pit us against each other. They do that all the time. And we see this play out in yoga and wellness. And you know, the byproduct of colonization is crab antics, where God forbid, for those of us who are minorities, we're taught to be pitted against each other. Like, oh my gosh, there's only room for one South Asian or one black person or one Asian person or Latinx or whatever. And so for me, as a South Asian woman, how am I platforming and amplifying the voices of other BIWOC and South Asians in this space? And also platforming people that I may not necessarily agree with, but I don't have to agree with them. We need to have that diversity of thought and of opinion. Otherwise, we're just in an echo chamber with our own thoughts and views. So I think to me, you know, to answer your question, there isn't an ownership for me. And this is my indigenous faith. I believe these practices should be accessible to everybody. But what I do have a problem with are people bastardizing, commercializing, commoditizing, and just using the word yoga to tap on to whatever it is that they're doing, because yeah. that's the continual colonization. And I will say that it's not just white folks doing this now, uh, not South Asians, but non-South Asian people of color are also falling into this now with that continual colonization and using yoga because they know that it sells to just tag on to anything. And that's not to discount, but of course, multiple other indigenous cultures have their ways of connecting with God, Kina. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't yoga, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, it wasn't the yoga that we practice in the West. It wasn't the yoga that comes from yeah. Hinduism and other Dharmic faiths being Buddhism and Jainism, mm -hmm. but Hinduism specifically because the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, mm -hmm. the Ramayana are Hindu scriptures. So, Anusha, this is maybe mind-blowing for some people. So I just want to say to anybody listening that, you know, if you're triggered in any way, please just sit with what Anusha is saying and do your own inner work about it. You know, read more of her blogs, what she's written, and check out what she posts and really just go from a listening perspective rather than a reactionary perspective. And I think that's so important is to, you know, acknowledge if you're reacting and then to sit with it and then to just do your own process work around that. What I'm also hearing in the subtext of what you're saying and also what is very inspiring about your journey is the responsibility placed upon the student's journey to both honor the student's path and to maintain agency. Because if you know we're not going to just surrender to one teacher or follow that one path and follow that particular hierarchical model, if maybe we're going to listen to one South Asian voice, another South Asian voice, you know, another someone who's trained in India, another someone from the United States, someone from Europe, someone from all over the world, then the only place that all of that knowledge truly intersects is in the path of the student. So the student then bears responsibility for honoring the lineage of yoga, for creating that sacred space and living it moment to moment, whether that means getting on the mat, whether that means, uh, you know, uh, worshiping God in their own way, whether that means being discriminating about what clothes to buy, 
what companies to support, what, you know, who to follow and who to platform and who to elevate and what's on their bookshelf. So it just, for me, I, I really hear that the, that the shift away from the singularity of maybe the guru model or the singularity of that colonizing perspective is kind of a multiplicity that is simultaneously a call to agency in every student, you know? So in, in that way, I think it, it's, it's liberating and also terrifying, you know, because there's... Well- Exactly. Why did, you know, why does the lineage work for people? Because it's a specific way of doing things. And that's not to, I personally, you know, don't want to detract from uh, teachers that have had wonderful offerings to, to offer in their lineages. However, we have to understand that the lineage model itself isn't accessible, Kina, you know, to, to many people. And I think that to me is how can we make yoga accessible to everybody? How can we be inclusive? How can we be representative? How can we encourage diversity? And to me, that is yoga. It should be available to everybody. But like you said, are we taking the agency upon ourselves to ensure that we are learning from a variety and a multitude of voices? And like I said, I firmly believe this run from anybody whoever they are, that is telling you that you have to only do this and you have to do it this way. And you've got, you know, because we've seen the harm that comes from those type of models. And it really is a way of control, which to me goes against the essence of Sanatana Dharma itself, where we are taught to question everything. And we are also taught to find our own way through the teachings. That doesn't mean that we don't learn and listen to teachers and other voices. We should, but we have to be focusing on that viveha, that discernment within. And so, you know, my goal is to make yoga as widely accessible to people as possible, especially BIPOC communities who have been marginalized and not included, and these practices haven't been accessible to them. But also the fact that South Asians have been sidelined alongside this from mainstream yoga and wellness, and it has been this you know, colonized view and perspective and teaching of, of something that is so disconnected from what we know to be true, if that makes sense. So I would say if anybody is feeling triggered uh, to sit with that, like you encourage them to do, but to also know that it's really important that you expand your horizons. And if everybody that you listen to is in agreement with you, I would strongly encourage people to listen to some other voices because that's how we grow Kino. Mm-hmm. You know, really. If everybody we talk to tells us what we want to hear and agrees with us, we're never going to be forced to reckon with some of the deeper issues that we need to in order for our own growth and evolution. Oh, what an inspiring uh, talk to encourage people to dive in and do some of that deep work that is necessary in the practice of yoga. I have one last question for you, and then I, I know you have to run is that the, there's this phrase that you've been saying as the, you know, the precursor to the word Hindu, which is the Sanatana Dharma. For some people, I've never heard that word before. Would you be able to perhaps give a brief explanation of what that is, why it's important, and where people might be able to learn more about that? So Sanatana Dharma predates Hinduism. And it's in Sanskrit, it means the eternal way, right? The eternal truth, which lives in our scriptures. Hindu and Hindu, Hindu specifically was the name that actually the, the, the Persians, when they came in and colonized, called the Indians that were in that region from the Indian subcontinent because of the Indus Valley, which is the Indus Valley and civilization, the Saraswati River civilization. 
So that was a name the colonizers gave us. And then the British actually coined the term Hinduism to make it an actual religion, whereas Sanatana Dharma predates Hinduism, predates it being confined, if you will, to a religion. And so that's why I always say my faith, because the faith transcends the barriers that religion has constructed specifically around patriarchy, religious supremacy, all of those things. And I think, you know, certainly in Hinduism, I teach, as I said, from that caste reformist perspective, but we don't have time. I teach this in decolonization. The caste system, the way that it was originally set up, is not the caste system of today. The caste system of today is a brutal form of subjugation and oppression that has to be dismantled. And so that's why, you know, yoga, has. we have to look at it post-lineage and away from those kind of casteist structures that were, were prevalent in India and still are. So Sanatana Dharma, eternal way, predates Hinduism, you know, contemporary Hinduism has been influenced by Jainism, Buddhism, you know, all of those things. But I say, you know, nobody knows what Sanatana Dharma is. And it was popularized during colonization because people began to resist the constraints that the British were putting on them in India uh, in terms of their faith. And they realized that Sanatana Dharma was far more than the European a colonized mentality could ever comprehend. And I think that's an important distinction to make. So what people think they know of Hinduism in the West is again, a very neo-colonial view of what our faith really is. And that's why I think there is so much Hindu phobia. I mean, I, the things that I, I have had directed at me illustrate that um, lack of awareness, lack of knowledge and deep lack of understanding of what the essence of Sanatana Dharma or Hinduism really is. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing, Anusha. There's so much more. And I hope to have you come back on the podcast because I think there's so much more for us to talk about. In the meanwhile, uh, for everyone uh, who's listening who want to follow you, would you just tell everyone where they can find you? And uh, of course, incur- I just encourage everyone to check out your um, new book. And if you can just share something about that for everyone and where they can find it. Thank you so much, Kino. Yes, you can follow me at Shanti within S-H-A-N-T-I-W-I-T-H-I-N on Instagram. And you can also order my book at your favorite bookstore, wherever you like. You can find details of my book on my website, shantiwithin.com, and more details about my work in the clinical setting and uh, around the world. And thank you so much for having me, Kino. This has been a very engaging, delightful discussion, and I hope that your audience finds it useful. Oh, I'm sure everyone will. And again, I just thank you so much. Thank you. Good. I will let you go. And now you're two minutes late. So that's better... fine. Yeah, fine. Okay. But I was looking thank at. You so much. I hope that that was helpful and, uh, you know, uh, helpful to your, your listeners who really, honestly, Kino, need to run away from any hierarchical models. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem is that we have to understand that the true essence of yoga is one that is not being told what to do all the time, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's you so know? interesting because, you know, like the Western mind is very much like telling me what to do. Like just look at that. Obsess- right. That's what it is. Yeah. That's and the what ob- obsession is. with technique, you know, there's like tech, this like crazy obsession with just, should the shoulder be here or here or here or there or two centimeters yeah. this way or two. I'm like, it's not that like this. Is- and also there's far too much focus on asana and the physical mm-hmm. and the Western mind loves that because of their ego and they, it's something they can do. And yeah. the Western and show. And show, do and show. And really the essence of of yoga is not doing or showing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's being. Mm -hmm. And 
that's very difficult. You know, I'm asked all the time, what should I call myself? And I always say, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what can I say? I'm a yogi. I mean, that's another conversation for the time. I don't personally like those terms because to us, those are really enlightened beings. I never refer to myself as a yogi, yogini or yogin. I don't feel I am. I feel that we should reserve those for really people that have renounced oh, the yeah. of living that path. And, and oh, none yeah. of them are, right? So we have to move away from that. But people are obsessed in the West with titles mm-hmm. and what they should call themselves. And yeah. they're with what they should teach versus Kino, what they should do and what they should be. Yeah. And so there's the disconnect basically. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you. That was a a great discussion and um, it was wonderful to chat with you and I'd love to come back. Yeah, no, me too. I would really, really, I would really love to. I think there's, I think there's a lot of work to be done on what, what the, what the actual lived experience of post-lineage yoga looks like. Cause I don't think it's, it's fully formed yet. And so I think that's a, uh, yeah. very, very important. And most, yeah. and so many of the voices that are talking about that are these white male voices. It's, it's, it's exactly all white people in general, but specific and white men love the lineage. They love the patriarchy. They do. <laughs> they love it. And they lord it over everybody else. And I will just end by saying, you know, I think that there are so many things that need to be unpacked in yoga, but the real essence of yoga is completely missed in most yoga environments because there mm-hmm. isn't that awareness. And the reason that white folks, women and men, love the lineage, love being told what to do is because they're looking for acceptance outside of themselves, Kino. Mm-hmm. That's the actual problem. You know, you mm-hmm. see this as, as the teacher, you know, they want you to tell them good whatever the pose is, right? Right. You know, right. great chaturanga, great whatever, right? They're looking for validation outside of themselves. And we are taught to look for validation within. It's the only place you're going to find it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why people like the hierarchy and the model, because it, it gives them sense. validation, it gives them acceptance, identity, sense of community and identity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's another conversation for another time. Yeah, we'll have that. I think we could we could do a whole we could we could spend the whole whole time talking about you know the, the that that post lineage concept and all of that. So that sounds good. I will let you go. So you're not too people to to really live yoga, which is the journey of self acceptance yeah. and self love. You know, not this man or any man, quite <laughs> frankly, or anybody giving you your sense of self worth. Yeah. And, you know, that's an important distinction. And I honestly think it's why the physical is so popular in the West, mm-hmm. because uh, there is that showmanship, you know, mm-hmm. around it, basically. Oh, absolutely. So, thank you so much. Thanks. And let me know and I will continue, you know, promote this obviously when it comes out. And I'd love to chat with you again. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, 
I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.